welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the colorectal module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation we're performing today, or the topics we'll be covering, are fissure in ano, perianal abscess, and pruritus ani. So let's kick off today's episode with fissure in ano. Before I get started, I just want to mention that there's a fantastic podcast episode on the Pod MD podcast where Vina Ann, one of the colorectal surgeons in Melbourne, does a great few minute summary of this topic. But we'll go into it in a little bit more detail. Uh, this is something that we probably need to know pretty well and have pretty tight for the exam as it's a common general surgical problem. There's a few clear steps in workup and management of this pathology and I think it'd be a very easy spot question and definitely has been a spot question in the past. So first let's start with a definition. A fissure in ano is an ulceration of the squamous epithelium of the endoderm of the anal canal distal to the dentate line and it can be thought of as an ischemic ulcer. The pathophysiology of this condition is believed to be associated initially with mechanical trauma to the anal canal, um, often due to the passing of a hard stool. And then this inciting injury leads to a secondary increased tone of the anal sphincter, thought to be due to a lack of nitric oxide, which then causes reduced blood supply or perfusion to the injured area. And this then causes a chronic ulcer in that area. This usually occurs at the 12 and 6 o'clock position as this is the most at-risk or sort of watershed area from a supply point of view with the blood supply obviously coming laterally from the uh, pudendal arteries. Patients often present with pain, usually associated with defecation, and they can have some spotting or bright red bleeding on the toilet paper, and they can also complain of a lump which may be due to a sentinel tag or swelling around the anal fissure. It's usually very difficult to examine these patients in the clinic because they are so sore, uh, but a external exam may show you a fissure, like I said, usually in the 12 or 6 o'clock, and there may be a sentinel tag. The differential diagnoses when a patient presents with this presentation is to think about hemorrhoids, fistulas in ano, a perianal abscess, and then it's also important to consider other potential causes of fissures, things such as inflammatory bowel disease, syphilis, tuberculosis, leukemias, anal cancers, and HIV can all be associated with fissures. And the pathophysiology or cause of these fissures is obviously different from that original pathway I talked about, and the treatment uh, and workup is obviously different as well. Often if there is a different pathology causing the fissure, you might find atypical features such as the fissure not being in the 12 or 6 o'clock position, which is where you would expect to see them. They may be associated with other anal pathologies. And it's important if you have an atypical fissure, especially one that's not healing after attempts at normal treatment, that a biopsy is taken to exclude an anal cancer or another cause of the fissure. We all know how much the exam loves a classification system. For anal fissures, they can be classified as acute 
or chronic. Acute fissures are present for less than six weeks and they often just look like a simple tear in the skin. And chronic fissures are present for more than six weeks. They're often characterized by that sentinel skin tag and um, often you can see the internal sphincter muscle in the base of the fissure. Moving on now to management of anal fissures. The aims of treatment are to decrease the resting anal tone, which is going to improve perfusion of the anoderm and encourage healing of the fissure. And the second thing is to avoid recurrence of the fissure by treating the underlying cause, which is often constipation. Once you've diagnosed an anal fissure, and that may be done just based on your history and your examination findings in the room, although you may only be able to perform a limited examination, you should start with medical therapy. This should start with simple measures and advice, such as improving patient's bowel habits by increasing fibre supplements and providing stool softeners, topical analgesics such as lignocaine jelly, suggesting warm sits baths for symptom relief, and commencing a topical treatment to reduce the tone of the anal sphincter. So there's two main choices in Australia when we're talking about treatment for sphincter tone. The first one is nitroglycerin or GTN cream. A common one of these is rectogesic cream. And basically the mechanism of action is that the local nitric oxide binds to cyclic GMP and leads to relaxation of the smooth muscle. The other option is nifedipine cream, which needs to be compounded in a compounding pharmacy and is often a 0.3% and can be mixed with a 5% lignocaine jelly. The mechanism of action for this is that it's a calcium channel blocker and cytoplasmic calcium is important component for smooth muscle contraction. So by limiting this, you cause relaxation. The advice that I give to patients is that they should put the cream on the tip of a earbud and insert it just inside the anal canal and swirl it around in order to expose the internal sphincter muscle to the cream. And they need to do this twice a day for six weeks. The GTN cream may cause headaches in some patients, up to 25% of patients, um, which may impact on their compliance. So that's when you might consider giving them a prescription for the nifedipine cream. This treatment is approximately 70% effective for healing anal fissures. However, some patients may not have relief with this treatment. If that's the case, then the next option is surgical treatments. The goal of surgery, again, is to relieve the spasm of the internal anal sphincter in order to improve blood flow to the fissure and encourage healing. And you would usually use these as second line once the medical treatment fails. This is often combined with an examination under anesthetic and a colonoscopy in order to exclude other diagnoses, including IBD or malignancy. There's two options from a surgical point of view, and this includes Botox injection or a lateral internal sphincterotomy. In terms of which of these two options to choose really depends on patient factors. So Botox has approximately a 70% success rate, but obviously doesn't involve division of any of the sphincter muscle. So this would be considered before a operation to divide the sphincter muscle, especially in young women or women who have continence issues pre-existing or who potentially have had previous obstetric trauma over a lateral internal sphincterotomy. 
but a lateral internal sphincterotomy has a more than 90% success rate and especially in men, a very low risk of any continence issues. So that may be first line in that group of patients, but it really is a, a individual patient decision. For a Botox injection, this procedure is done under a general anesthetic with the patient in lithotomy position. You start by doing an examination under anesthetic to have a look, uh, feel the area and confirm the diagnosis of a fissure. I would usually use an Eisenhammer retractor and in, examine the anorectal mucosa in order to rule out other pathologies such as Crohn's or proctitis. The Eisenhammer retractor will stretch and open the sphincter muscle, which enables you to use palpation to identify the internal sphincter. And I would identify it at the three o'clock position. You should be able to feel the ridge of the internal sphincter. You prepare the Botox in an insulin syringe using a lure lock. And I usually reconstitute 70 units with one mil of normal saline. And I use an orange 25 French needle for injection. I'll inject 35 units at the 3 o'clock and the 9 o'clock position into the intersphincteric groove, and I also then curate the surface of the fissure back to healthy tissue. I'll do a pudendal nerve block with 0.75% repivacaine using 10 mils on each side, and my post-operative plan is to ensure the patient has a formed and soft stool by prescribing them both fiber and Movicol supplements. I'll provide simple analgesia and I'll see the patient again in six to eight weeks to assess their symptoms. This procedure, like I said, has about a 70% success rate and it also can be repeated a second time. One of the drawbacks of this procedure is obviously the Botox is quite expensive um, and often you need to get special permission to use this in the hospital setting, especially the public setting, and patients should have had a failure of um, conservative treatments and creams prior to progressing to Botox injection. The second option is a lateral internal sphincterotomy. This procedure, like I said, has a 90 plus percent success rate, but it should really be avoided in young women or patients with pre-existing continence issues. It's usually performed on the right, and a key is not to extend more superiorly than the upper edge of the fissure or the dentate line. So again, in order to perform this procedure, I have the patient in the lithotomy position. I will do an external examination, look, feel, and confirm the diagnosis. Again, I'll use an Eisenhammer retractor in order to stretch open the sphincter and examine the anorectal mucosa. I usually do this at the uh, three o'clock position. So I identify the internal sphincter as that ridge of tissue, um, which I've put on stretch with the Eisenhammer retractor. I perform a transverse incision through the mucosa at that three o'clock position with a knife. And I use a small pointed artery forcep in order to develop a plane between the internal and external sphincter muscles and also then between the mucosa and the internal sphincter. And you could encounter some bleeding here from the submucosal venous plexus. I then use two arteries to hold above and below the incision or my intended incision in the internal sphincter and I divide the internal sphincter under vision to the upper extent of the fissure using diathermy. An alternative here is to use an artery to isolate approximately a third of the muscle, sort of pushing it through and underneath the muscle and then dividing down to the artery. I then perform hemostasis and I leave my mucosal incision open and routinely perform a pudendal nerve block. 
this operation has a high success rate but does have um, a acute risk of incontinence, especially with flatus um, of up to about 30%, but this usually resolves within three months, especially in patients without pre-existing issues with continence. Uh, obvious other risks include pain, infection and bleeding from that submucosal venous plexus. Two other procedures which I have not seen done routinely and probably wouldn't mention in the exam, but I'll briefly mention here, include anal dilatation and fissurectomy with an advancement flap. So anal dilatation is basically a four-finger dilatation of the anal sphincter with sustained lateral distraction, but this has an up to 20 to 25 risk of incontinence due to the internal sphincter disruption, and I've never seen this done in practice. The second thing is a fissurectomy and an advancement flap. So this involves excision of the fibrotic edge of a chronic fissure, curatage of the base and excision of the sentinel tag, and then a island or a VY rotational flap to cover this area. Again, I haven't seen this done in practice. I've definitely seen the fissure sort of freshened up in the context of these other procedures, but um, it's probably just worth knowing about. But I think the Botox injection and lateral anal sphincterotomy are probably the two main procedures to be aware of for anal fissures. Time to move on to perianal abscess. This is another very common presentation that we come across in general surgical practice. Patients will usually present with perianal pain and can also have fevers or an abscess that has burst. Risk factors include diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, especially Crohn's disease, previous perianal surgery and immunosuppression, including HIV. The pathophysiology of this condition is commonly thought to be due to the cryptoglandular theory. There's approximately 8 to 10 anal crypts with glands in them in the anal canal at the level of the dentate line. These crypts and glands create mucus fluid that will help to lubricate the stool on defecation. Up to 90% of perianal abscesses are thought to originate originally as a cryptoglandular infection, where you get a blocked anal gland that secondarily gets infected, and then an abscess forms, which then tracks through the anatomical planes and can be across planes. Given the location of the dentate line, these usually start in the intersphincteric plane and then can go either inferiorly to become a perianal abscess, can go through the external sphincter to be an ischiorectal abscess, or superiorly up the intersphincteric place to become a supralevator abscess. The remaining 10% of perianal abscesses are thought to be due to other causes such as Crohn's disease or thrombosed hemorrhoids that get infected. Common organisms are gut organisms such as E. coli, can be skin organisms such as Staph aureus. They're mostly mixed uh, when you culture them and you can get rare organisms such as bacteroides or strep proteus strains. Differential diagnoses for a perianal abscess include a malignancy, hydroadenitis or fistulas and inflammatory bowel disease. The diagnosis of a perianal abscess is typically made through history and clinical examination. Often there's a tender erythematous fluctuant 
mass or swelling. Although if there's deep sepsis, especially supraelevator sepsis, this can be more difficult to diagnose. Usually imaging is not required, although in complex disease, patients with underlying IBD, patients with um, occult disease clinically, or if you're worried about a malignancy, you may do imaging modalities such as pelvic CT or MRI, or even an endoanal ultrasound, but this would be on a case-by-case basis. It's good to have a look at the different locations of anorectal abscesses on um, a picture. There's good pictures online. The common locations, as I sort of mentioned, include the intersphincteric space, the perianal location, which is sort of a subcutaneous uh, space, supralevator, and also in the ischiorectal space, which is the uh, fibro fatty space between the rectal uh, canal or anal canal and the ischial spines. You can also get horse shoeing of an abscess, which is where it sort of extends around the rectum. And this can happen at three different levels, which include in that intersphincteric plane, in the ischiorectal plane, and also in the supralevator plane. So it's, again, good to have a look at some pictures of that. The management of perianal sepsis, the basic principles are to drain sepsis and obviously to maintain or preserve continence. Typically, patients will be admitted to hospital and started on broad-spectrum intravenous antibiotics, resuscitated with intravenous fluids, fasted, and provided with adequate analgesia. Patients should be booked and consented for an examination under anaesthetic and an incision and drainage of the abscess. Drainage is typically done in the operating theatre under a general anaesthetic in the lithotomy position. The point of maximal fluctuance should be identified and often a perianal examination will be performed as well to exclude a high sepsis or supralevator sepsis, which may be felt um, as a bulge within the rectum. A cruciate incision is made on the skin overlying this site of maximal fluctuance. The cavity is opened, a pus swab is sent, any necrotic tissue is debrided, and a biopsy can be taken of the wall if you're worried about Crohn's disease or malignancy. The cavity should be washed out and packed uh, with Caltostat, or if there's a high component, you might place a, a mushroom or a depezer drain catheter. In an acute situation, I wouldn't routinely probe for a fistula as this could cause a fistula or a passage through the inflamed tissue. Although in the setting of a abscess that's already draining through the rectal canal or an obvious opening um, in this situation, I would place acetone. If there's a large ischiorectal abscess, especially if there's a horseshoe abscess, um, you can also drain um, through two locations to ensure adequate drainage of the area. Most patients will improve with this treatment and in the absence of significant cellulitis, they can be sent home the next day after removal of packing with packing of the opening of the cavity to allow healing by secondary intention. The natural history of perianal sepsis is that approximately 10 to 30% of patients will get a recurrence and up to 25% of patients will develop a fistula uh, as a later presentation. So these patients should be followed up and examination made uh, to ensure that there isn't uh, any fistula as an outcome of this presentation. Patients that may have non-healing or non-resolving abscesses may have had inadequate initial drainage. 
may have underlying predisposing factors such as Crohn's disease or immunosuppression or may have an underlying fistula that hasn't been diagnosed. So in these situations, you should consider these possibilities uh, and perform appropriate next investigations to rule these out. So to finish off this very exciting episode into perianal disease, I'm going to briefly mention pruritus ani. This is a common pathology which is usually managed by the dermatology department. Uh, However, surgical assessment may be important in order to rule out other underlying causes or patients may present primarily to the surgical office with this problem. Pruritus ani is an intense chronic itching of the perianal skin. It affects men more than it affects women, and it can affect up to 1% to 5% of the population. There are nearly 100 different causes for pruritus ani, and about 75% of cases will have a coexisting pathology or an underlying cause found. So it's important to take a thorough history and examination of the patient. From a surgical point of view, the most common causes are fecal incontinence or fecal leakage and typically the condition is exacerbated by patients excessively cleaning the area or use of inappropriate topical creams. Other potential causes though can include neoplasia such as rectal cancers or rectal adenomas, anal SCC, melanomas and extramammary Paget's disease. Even conditions such as hemorrhoids, fissures, fistulas, rectal prolapse, uh, radiation proctitis and ulcerative colitis can cause pruritus ami. Other infections such as condylomata, threadworms, candida, syphilis and HSV can also cause it. And then dermatological conditions such as dermatitis, lichen simplex, lichen planus and lichen atrophicus can also cause itching. Diagnosis uh, is based on history and exam, as I've said. A PR examination should be performed to rule out anal sphincter dysfunction, other causes of pruritus and rectal prolapse, and to rule out other things such as hemorrhoids, fissures, uh, rectal cancers, those sorts of things. A colonoscopy should only be performed if there is a clear indication on the history and exam, and if there's any obvious skin lesions or skin changes, then a biopsy should be taken. And also if there's diarrhea uh, or if there's um, any potential risk of worms, then a fecal sample should be taken to rule out infectious causes and also to rule out overcysts and parasites as a cause of the itching. Treatment of paritis ani should be focused on treating the underlying pathology. So, for example, if the patient has fecal incontinence, then a workup and management plan for that should be undertaken. Patients should be advised to have good personal hygiene uh, with cleansing of the perineum with water and gently dabbing to dry the area rather than rubbing with toilet paper. The itch can be managed with topical treatments such as an anti-itch powder, a systemic antihistamine, a short course of topical steroids to break the cycle of itching, and also loose underwear with non-allergenic material. Obviously, if another underlying cause is found, such as hemorrhoids, fissures, anal cancers, or inflammatory bowel disease, then the treatment plan should be targeted towards that underlying cause. Thanks for sticking with me through this episode 
As usual, please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>